right, so welcome to my radio show, Cognitive Dissident. My name is Kalyani Saxena, and hopefully if you're listening, um, you tuned in for the show and not for something else, which um, would be unfortunate for you. So today we're going to be talking about the second episode, which is called Suppression and Solidarity. Um, But before that, I just wanted to say, um, I'm not sure if you guys watched the Oscars last night, but I did, and um, Green Book won, which I have thoughts on. I never saw it, actually, but I have been following the internet discourse about how it's about, like, a white racist man teaching a black man what it's like to be black. Um, So, honestly, I'm not surprised, but overall, it did seem to be kind of a win for a lot of a lot of um, different people of color who won during the night. Like, two women won for Black Panther, um, which is really exciting. Um, but, yeah, and Spike Lee won, which was great. I think he's been waiting for that for a long time. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the moment where he jumped on um, Samuel Jackson, but that was, that was something to watch. Um, speaking of the Academy and voting... See, see my clever segue there. Um, we're going to be talking about voter suppression in the first half of this episode. So a little bit of context on, um, oh, maybe before I start, as a political science major, I understand the importance of citing everything. So the first half of this episode, a lot of my information came from the BBC, um, the Brookings Institution, Slate, American Public Media, The Root, The New Yorker, US News, Fox, and The Washington Post. If you have any questions about where my information is from, please come talk to me um, and I will send it your way because I think citation is important and giving credit where credit is due is also important. So a little context on why I decided to um, take on voter suppression as a topic. I spent a lot of time during the like 2018 election cycle really wondering what are people talking about when they say voter suppression? Because you know, in your American government class, you don't really talk about voter suppression. Like, you get the, like, I can't tell you how many times people have told me, you know, America is, like, the best democracy in the world. It's where democracy was, like, first born. And you hear all this stuff about how important democracy is in America. And, yes, that is 100% true. But at the same time, it's not... It's not as simple as everybody getting a chance to vote. So when you hear about voter suppression, specifically in the news, you're like, one, what does that even mean? And two, how are people just talking about voter suppression? Like, it's something that we normally expect. Um, So here is, so I'm going to break it down as best as I can. Um, Here is a basic definition of voter suppression. So it's a strategy used to influence the outcome of an election by discouraging or preventing specific groups of people from voting. So that's that feels pretty self-explanatory, but maybe I'll break it down further. Voter suppression isn't like physically, well, I guess it can be. Like when I was first reading about it, I thought of it as, you know, people with bats, like preventing people from actually showing up to the polls. But sometimes it's more subtle than that. And sometimes, and I think because of that, it's a lot harder to get rid of, which we'll see later on in the episode. Um, so here's a little bit about how it works. Basically, there is one party that's basically been, um, (laughs) 
I'm going to try not to say basically. <laughs> There's one party that's been controlling um, and pursuing voter suppression. And if you guessed it's the Republican Party, you would be correct because these voter ID laws, these voter um, suppression laws are usually in electorally competitive states. So swing states where basically um, where there's essentially there's no um, clear winner. There's as many Republicans as there are Democrats or it's very possible that a Democrat could win. It's also very possible that a Republican win, a Republican could win. So because of that, there needs to be uh, the Republicans have put in measures which will prevent people from basically um, from <laughs> getting to vote. So according to one of my sources, the passage of voter ID laws is highly partisan, strategic, and racialized. So I think that's something that goes back to the beginning of the definition, right? Like it prevents specific groups of people from voting. On the surface, yeah, maybe it's you're preventing Democrats from voting, but it goes, it's more specific than that. It's, it's racialized. It's about African-American communities specifically and also Latinx communities specifically because these people often have the greatest... Um, power to swing these votes and therefore if you want to stop if you want to stop the tide from turning you have to stop these people from showing up at the polls so that will make sense in theory right like but even reading about this I was like how can this be like how can this be allowed like what does this mean in practice like you're trying to prevent certain ethnic groups certain racial groups from voting but you don't exactly like how are they doing that so i'm going to go through a few different states and the different ways in which voter suppression happens in those states so in florida we have 1.5 million ex-felons who will not be allowed to vote um and it's one of the few states where ex-offenders um, basically people who have gone to jail and are now released from jail. Um, we have to prevent them from voting unless the governor gives them a pardon, which, let's be real, is unlikely. So from those 1.5 million ex-felons, almost 500,000 of them are African-Americans who traditionally vote Democrat. So let's take a minute to process that. I think a lot of people who hear that statistic might think, oh, well, they're ex-felons, right? Like, they don't deserve to have a part in our democratic process. They committed a crime, they went to jail, and now they're out, and that's good for them, but they really shouldn't be part of the voting cycle. But I think that also hides a greater inequality underneath, where a lot of ex-felons who are African-American have been incarcerated for the either things they didn't do or things that were minor offenses like having drugs or something like that and were in prison for a very long time. So it's not necessarily that these ex-felons have committed, like there are certainly some of them who have, but these people who have been released don't necessarily, like they still deserve a voice in our political process. So for them to not have one is absolutely strategic because it prevents, um, almost 500,000 African-Americans from voting. And sometimes in states like Florida, the election is decided by like 100,000 points. Like it's not, it's, it, this is an important number of people. This is not an insignificant amount of people. 
So that, that's one of the ways that that happens in Florida. Um, Georgia, which we're going to be hearing a lot about later, has more than 50,000 voter registration applications. 70% of them are from African Americans. Um, and according to the Associated Press, more than 50,000 of these voter registration applica applications have been put on hold due to alleged problems with identification information. So that's, that's really clever, right? Like it's not someone standing outside of a poll and saying, hey, you can't come in here because you're black, but it's saying, oh, I'm sorry, this is just a technical difficulty. This is just, you know, something you need to go check up on because we can't take you in unless your voter ID is correct. So it, it's, they're making it seem as if it's part of the bureaucratic process, maybe part of bureaucratic inefficiency, like, oh, it's not really our fault, it's kind of your fault because you didn't get your documents right. Um, but we'll see later on that that's not necessarily the case that they that there is a genuine mistake that really usually this is done to prevent African Americans from voting and swinging elections. So African Americans aren't the only groups um, that are targeted by these voter restriction laws. Often it's um, other other minorities and one I think that gets overlooked a lot is Native Americans. So in North Dakota, for example, a new law demands voters show identification that provides their name, date of birth, and a residential address. So that has a specific impact on thousands of Native Americans because these Native Americans live in reservations and they don't have street addresses. They only have post box offices. So they they physically they literally cannot comply with the rules because they don't have what it's asking for. However, because it's a law, it it's kind of created these requirements and it's saying, well, we're not preventing them from voting. We're just saying that they need to fulfill these requirements. However, that kind of neglects the fact that these requirements were created specifically with Native Americans in mind to restrict them. It's not just that it was a coincidence that Native Americans didn't have these requirements and that this is just due diligence and that's just the way it happens to be, which is what I think Republicans who are trying to pursue these voter suppression laws make the image seem, and they make it seem like that's what it's about, but really it's this law was constructed with Native Americans in mind specifically. So the last one that I have, uh, there are more states that partake in this sort of behavior, but I just pulled a few examples. North Carolina, so any registered voter in the state, not in the state, in the state can challenge another's, another voter's registration. In one county called Moore County, one single person challenged nearly 400 registered voters, and that person just happened, happened to be the secretary of the county Republican Party. So, first of all, this like really seems... I don't know, it seems very old-timey to me. Like, I feel like we're back in the medieval ages. It's like, I, I challenge you to a duel. Except this time the duel is um, voter registration. Like, usually you think people will challenge each other to duels about affairs or betrayal. But it's like, no, I challenge you to prove that you can vote. I don't know, it just seems really dramatic and totally out of, um, out of, this era. It, it feels weird, to say the least. Also, lady, this secretary who challenged 400 registered voters who happened to be of the county Republican Party. Like, if you're going to do that, if you're going to, if you're going to challenge people to these voter registration duels, at least, at least have someone do it who 
it very clearly reflects back on your party and your party's motives. Like, it's, it's, it doesn't take too much brain power to put it together that you are trying to engage in voter suppression for the benefit of your own party within the county. If you're going to do that, have your, like, grandpa do it. No one's going to think old Grandpa John is trying to engage in voter suppression. So that's what happened in North Carolina. So you can see that these are different kinds of laws, right? Like, the first one was restricting people for being a um, ex-felons. The second was saying, oh, there's a problem with your identification information. The third was, oh, you need a residential address. And the fourth was, frankly, bonkers. But the other three just seem like simple regulation issues. Like, oh, you know, it's, this is just the way the law is. And if you don't have the requirements, you can't vote. And it's for voter security, right? Like, it's to make sure our elections are secure. We'll get more into why that is a ridiculous sort of justification. But that is some examples of the way in which um, voter suppression works. I also wanted to talk a little bit about gerrymandering. So it's a, it's a little different than the laws that I've been talking about before, but it's, it's equally important. So previously, pr- prior to 1965, um, what used to happen was that lawmakers would draw voting districts. So basically, essentially what you have is um, with districts, you get one representative per district. So when they would draw these districts, and the districts are drawn by lawmakers, they would spread racial minorities across the voting district so that there were too few in, basically, in, any, di- in any district to elect their preferred candidates. So suppose you have um, 10 minorities, you, sp- you put two in five districts, their voice is suddenly much, much quieter and they can't really have a big say in, in who's voting and, and who they elect. So this um, was kind of the case up until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was a great landmark thing from uh, the civil rights era. However, n- so after that, after the Voting Rights Act was passed, there was now a new law which said that there had to be majority minority districts, which basically meant like, uh, w- which m- meant that you had to have um, like 50% in this place, uh, 50% African Americans in this place, and 10% in another place. So it, it, it's, it split them up so that there was one district which had a majority of, for example, African Americans, and another district that had a minority. That felt fair. However, you can't underestimate the potential of politicians to try and undermine minority voices because they found a way to use this to their advantage this new law, which was supposed to make things fair, what they did essentially was they would pack all these majority districts with as many minorities as possible. So like, like way more than they were supposed to be. They would draw the district line so that it would have majority minority um, minorities in it. And what this does essentially is it makes the minority vote very powerful in certain districts, but then dilutes their influence elsewhere. So they they get, for example, suppose they could have, um, they were spread across three districts, they could have three, um, three, uh, three representatives for Congress. But now that they're all in one district, they only have one representative in Congress. So there's only one person who's in Congress voicing their, um, their concerns and their issues. And this might seem kind of strange because 
well, you know, even if they were spread across different districts and they had some influence, they wouldn't have enough influence, right? That's actually changing. Um, one of his, these professors at a University of Chicago law school, um, Nicholas Stephanopoulos, said that things are changing. So what it means, actually, I don't know if Nicholas said that, but someone said that. Um, now, even if you have like 30% minorities in a district, it's enough to, to let another minority candidate win because there's a lot of white voters who have changed their voting patterns. That People don't necessarily vote along race lines anymore. So if there were even 10%, 15%, 20% minorities in these other districts, then they would still be able to elect more representatives for Congress. But because people have turned this voting law on its head and made sure that all the minorities are in their majority district, it limits the amount of representation that they get in Congress. So that's kind of how gerrymandering works. Um, that's kind of the only, we'll only touch on that a little bit, but I thought it was important to talk about. So where did this all come from? When did this voter suppression start? So it's obviously, America has a history of preventing certain people from having a voice in our political process, but this sort of era of voter suppression is relatively recent. So it started after 2000 um, when George Bush had a very close election with um, Al Gore. So Republicans kind of freaked out. They're like, "Well, that was a that was a super close election. Like, we want to cut. We don't want to cut it that close." So they decided that they would put some laws in place which would limit Democrats' access to the ballot. So voter ID measures like the ones I talked about, and this disproportionately fell on minorities. Um, and it wasn't just Republican lawmakers. It was literally President Bush. I have a lot of thoughts on George W. Bush because I think there's been a really careful rebranding of him in our country as like this, especially in the era of Trump, where it's like, oh, remember when we hated Bush? Look what we have now. Look at this kindly old grandpa who, okay, he's not that old, but look at this kindly old man. Like he was just, he was just stupid, right? Like it wasn't, we didn't have a problem with him. Like he wasn't doing anything nefarious. He was just dumb. Ha 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 No. George Bush was equally capable of being calculating. And we see that here. So he actually notoriously used to fire U.S. attorneys who couldn't find fraudulent voters to prosecute. So he basically, t he told the Justice Department, okay, I need you guys to find me some fraudulent voters. And then U.S. attorneys were like, um, that's fake, like, you, bad. And George Bush said, well, um, find a new job. So that's what they had to do, and he fired attorneys that who couldn't find fraudulent voters, and then that kind of told the Justice Department attorneys that their jobs were dependent on finding fraud that doesn't exist. So he, in, he, he created a sort of coercive threat there, like, if you don't find me what I want, if you don't find false evidence, then I'm going to throw you out, which... Job security is a big thing, folks. Like, it's important. So between 2002 and 2006, the Bush administration's crackdown actually resulted in, <clears throat> are you guys ready for this? Four years. <clears throat> 86 convictions of voter fraud. Oh, an epidemic. Um, and, and that 86 convictions were out of 200 million ballots that were cast. So that is a rate, according to the Slate article, of 0.00004%. This meant that a majority of convicted voters, well, okay, 
And a lot of these people, these 86 people who were convicted, didn't fill out their registration forms accurately. Like, they just couldn't read. Like, sometimes it'd be like that. Sometimes you just can't read. Um, I'm sure they had other problems. But the point is that they filled out their ballots incorrectly. It wasn't like they were committing voter fraud in, in the more scary sense of the term, but that they just misunderstood what was being asked of them. Then Republican politicians and lobbyists took this grand number of 86 and used it as proof that Democrats were corrupting elections and unfairly winging results. So that led to a bunch of restrictions. So one question that I had was like, this seems like, this seems pretty garbage. Like, this is, this is pretty bad. How is it legal? So don't worry, folks. I got the answer for you because unfortunately it is super legal. In 2013, there was a decision that based that it truly just eviscerated the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is the one I talked about earlier, which had protections on minor protections for minorities to vote. So, Chief, lovely Chief Justice John Roberts said, <clears throat> "Discrimination still exists, but not sufficiently to warrant the extraordinary remeditation measures that the Act imposed on the states of the former Confederacy." So, what he's saying is. Yeah, racism's still real, but it's not that bad. So therefore, we don't need to protect minorities ever. Thank you, good night. And I think you see this problem still. Like, this was in 2013, but six years later, we still have the same problem where people are like, racism isn't real. You had a black president. It's this narrative of post-racial uplift, which, uh, borrowing a term from my Asian American studies class, where people think that in the era of post-Barack Obama that racism has kind of gone out of this country so we can start pulling back those restrictions. And I think that's probably the most dangerous time to be pulling back restrictions, when people get complacent and when they think that they can that racism isn't there anymore and because of that that's when more people like these lawmakers can swoop in and get rid of um, these restrictions that protect people. So what are the consequences? I think on in a broader sense in Ohio for example which was one of the states that Hillary Clinton lost voters were purged in many of the democratic leaning counties and in the in the four of those counties more than a million people were removed from their voter rolls and Trump won that state by nearly 447,000 votes. So you can't necessarily assume that all the people who were purged from the voter rolls were going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but the fact is that Trump did win by a very small margin. So even if half of those people were going to vote for Hillary Clinton, or even much less than that, she might have won that state, and that could have proved to be important in the general election. And specifically, I think we should talk about Georgia, uh, sorry, I know this segment's really long, but it's super important, um, where there was a big voter purge in July 2017 where Brian Kemp, who is now the governor who ran against Stacey Ab- um, Abrams, basically said that um, these people were, were removed because they had this use it or lose it law, which basically, which means really that um, if you didn't vote in a prior election, you could be removed from the ballot. So if you decided for some reason you didn't want to vote, but you were taxpaying, you hadn't moved, you hadn't died, you didn't get to vote because you hadn't voted in the prior elections. And nine other states happen to have these use it or lose it policies. So that removed 107,000 people from the ballots. And then Kemp put in this exact match law, which meant that your application has to have all the exact same information, which we talked about earlier. But then he used this 
exact match law to suspend 53,000 voter applications for something as small as like a hyphen missing from your surname. And because of that, he won the governor's race by a little more than 85,000 votes. If even some of those 53,000 people who were removed from the application um, had voted for his opponent, she might have won. So these laws, which are legal, have very real consequences in this country at shutting down minority voices and also preventing minorities who run for office from even making it to these positions of power. So I wanted to end this segment on a small quote. So Ari Berman, who's a voting rights reporter for The Nation, um, said, There is a kernel of truth in Trump's claims of a rigged election. One party is trying to rig the election, he said, but it's not Democrats, it's the GOP. So thanks so much for listening to this first segment of um, Cognitive Dissident. And we're going to have a short break for some music, and we'll be back with the second half of our episode. So thanks for staying tuned. For the second part of this episode, which deals with solidarity. Um, So I'm specifically going to be talking about the civil rights era and the solidarity between the Asian American movement and the Black Power movement. As before, I'm going to talk about my sources. I also really want to mention that when I was researching a lot of the stuff on voter suppression, there was a ton of material. But when I was trying to find out the exact mechanics of the Asian American movement, as well as the Black Power movement, there were really very few sources, which is disappointing. You'd think there would be more about that sort of collaboration. I don't know if it's because it was a long, long time ago or because people don't want to talk about it, but I will be talking about it today. So my sources come from densho.org, which is a website which um, catalogs the stories of people who survived the Japanese internment camps, and um, Nebraska history, I know, wild, kind of out there, Oxford Research Encyclopedia, and of course, my favorite, the New York Times. So before I get started, let me give you a brief rundown of both the Asian American movement as well as the Black Power movement. So the Asian American movement was a social movement most active between the late 1960s and the mid-1970s. And it brought together people of various Asian ancestries in the United States who were protesting against racism and U.S. neo-imperialism. So this was during the Vietnam War and people were not happy about it and a lot of Asian Americans banded together about it. And it also demanded for changes in institutions, specifically colleges and universities. And its founding principle was of coalition politics. So it emphasized solidarity firstly among Asians of all ethnicities because prior to this people would form ethnic groups according to where they were from. So Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, and not really work together as a coalition. So that was one of its founding principles as well as multiracial solidarity with Asian Americans, sorry, with um, African, Latino, and Native Americans in the United States, as well as transnational solidarity with people across the globe. So this was really kind of a everybody under the umbrella working together um, movement. And the term Asian American was coined actually by a student at UCLA in 1968. He and his partner decided, um, Emma G was her name, They were then student activists, and they adopted the name to separate 
themselves from the oriental trope which was kind which was a name that was given by white people to Asians in this country as a way of using them as the other so Asian American establishes yes we are Asian but yes we are also American which I still think is very powerful and I also strongly identify with the term so many years later and the black power movement specifically the black panther power um Black Panther Party was established in 1966, so it came before the Asian American movement, and rose to prominence um, with radicals of color by the late 1960s. So they like to bl- they like to blend racial politics with racial pride, and advocated for community control over education, law enforcement, and housing. And they also celebrated the aesthetics of black people, black bodies, and black culture. So these were two movements that were happening at the same time. The black power um, movement came first and the Asian American movement came second, but they absolutely were not separate things. And I think that's really important to think about because I think there's a lot of discourse in this country that seems almost, you know, black and white in its essence like there are white people and there are African Americans and yes there are Asian Americans but they they don't really count as minorities because you know they assimilate and they're good and I think this is a really interesting rare instance in history where these two groups were not positioned as separate and against each other um, but really working together and as part and Asian Americans were acknowledged as this important part of our country not just on this black and white arbitrary like binary thing that we seem to have fallen unfortunately back into so these movements really influenced each other the black power movement specifically had a huge important role in the development of asian american movements so they um there was, so for some context on the West Coast, there were a lot of Chinese Americans who lived in the ghetto of San, Fr- San Francisco Chinatown, which during that time had really substandard education, housing, social services. It just, frankly, it was not a good place to live, um, either for, yeah, for, for Chinese Americans. And then they, but they, and there was also a lot of police brutality. So then a young, pe- a, a group of young people started to group together in a pool hall and a lot of the Panthers took notice. And then, not only did they take notice, they invited the Chinatown youth to study sessions and political theory and urged them to form an organization. So this led to the development of the Red Guard Party, which mirrored a lot of the Black Panthers' ideology and language, but was, instead of talking about Black power, was talking about yellow power. Um, those are their words, not mine. And it, their Minister of Information talked a lot about the commonalities of blacks and Asian Americans who both experience racism and exploitation in the U.S., which is, I think, so important. And I'm so glad that that was a big part of history because I think we miss out on a lot of that today. Like so many of our experiences are shared as people of color in this country. And it would it would work so much better if we all worked together. Like when Asian Americans get really upset about affirmative action, like they're like African Americans are stealing their seats in schools like that that is the exact opposite of of what we want to be talking about like our experiences are shared in many ways they're different of course and asian americans traditionally now have been treated like the model minority and are not necessarily treated as awfully as african americans but but we do have a shared history and it's important that we work together and and clearly they did during that era um and then also on the east coast so that was on the west coast 
um, two women who actually led to the formation of Asian Americans for Action in 1969, looked at the black power, anti-racist, and anti-imperialist politics, and also that kind of combination of racial pride, so like taking pride in your race and your ethnicity and your part in this country. They looked at that, that the, the Black Panthers were doing, and they thought, whoa, that looks real good. And... <laughs> I don't mean to trivialize it, but they were really in awe. And they saw black power kind of as an antidote to a lot of the assimilation, that fever, in a sense, that's the words from the article, that had struck many Japanese Americans after the internment camps, which, if you want to learn more about the internment camps, tune into my past episode. Um, Shameless self-promo over now. But basically, what happened was after Japanese internment camps, it was the exact opposite of like a political revolution immediately after. A lot of people just went back to their lives, kept their head down, and tried to assimilate and prove how much they were American. And a lot of these kids who spent time in these internment camps didn't like that and didn't agree with this pro-assimilation. So they saw that the Black Panthers were using this sort of methodology and decided to adopt it and it was a really important recruiting strategy for Asian Americans on the East Coast. So these two movements really influenced each other. So the Black Panthers were crucial, crucial, crucial to having even any sort of Asian American movement because they essentially provided a model that Asian Americans could copy and and copy and adapt to their own. And as well as that, they also worked together. So this reading about this was so cool because I I never even knew about any of this stuff before. But in there was something called the Third World Liberation Front Strike, strike which started at San Francisco State in November of 1968, and it's the longest student strike in U.S. history because it ended in March 1969. So Asian American students, Black students, Chicano students, and Native students clashed with administrators and also the police. And with the explicit purpose of having an ethnic studies department and increasing the number of students and faculty of color at the school. They gave 50 non-negotiable demands and decided that they were going to revolutionize the college. They wanted a different curriculum. They wanted different institutional control. And they also wanted financial aid, which is so great because a lot of times we don't talk about the intersection between class and race. And that is such a huge determiner in this country of who gets to go to college, who gets to have a voice, and who gets to even leave their communities. So for them to demand financial aid was at that time was incredible. And the acting president was very much opposed to the strikers. And the article I read quoted him as gleefully repressing the strikers. Um, And he called the San Francisco Police Department onto campus and had hundreds of students arrested over the course of the strike, which was, um, I think, five months? Yeah, five months. And on March 21st, 1969, finally the administration gave in. And they created the first ever in the whole United States School of Ethnic Studies, which comprised of American Indian Studies, which I assume refers to Native American, Asian American Studies, Black Studies, and La Raza Studies. So this was the first time in the history of America that schools, institutions decided that they would make space 
for knowledge about people of color. And it only came because Asian Americans and African Americans, as well as Native Americans and Latinx students, worked together in order to make this happen. And I think we've seen some, we still see some of that today. Like a lot of the um, Asian Americans on this campus spent a long time working with the administration. We didn't, I, I can't remember if there was, I heard something about a strike in like 2005, but in recent years they worked to get a tenured position from the faculty for someone in the Asian American Studies Department. And that was done with the support of other ethnic groups on this campus. So the solidarity still does exist, which is wonderful. And this protest in 1969, UC Berkeley saw it and was like, hmm, hmm, nothing like a little little plagiarism of activism. And they did the exact sort of thing. They also called themselves the Third, Third World Liberation Front and called a strike on January 22nd, 1969. And their strike was shorter, I think, because the it just was. And... On March 19th, they also had a department, the chancellor of the school um, announced a department uh, addressing the experiences. So students used their power to make this change happen and only by working together, which is something I never knew happened. Like we, we always think about these movements as totally separate and they very much fed into each other. And Today, the reason that people can be Asian American studies minors, because this college doesn't offer it as a major, I think, I could be wrong, but the reason that we have that today is because people reached across race, race lines and learned that working together was so much better than working apart. So that's just a really cool piece of history right there. I also wanted to talk about some specific activists. So I already talked about how um, the Black Panther movement fed into the Asian American movement, but I wanted to talk about also some activists, um, Asian American activists who stood up for um, African Americans during this time and proceeding. So there was someone named Joseph Ishikawa, and he also was at an internment camp in Colorado. And then he, he, he was one of the only few who was able to leave that internment camp because he, um, he got to go to college, which was the only way. You could either get a small, small chance of an acceptance to a college, or you could go to fight in the army and probably maybe die. So, you know, he went for the university route, which I can't really fault him for. So he ended up in Nebraska, which is why I had Nebraska history as part of my sources. And he became a city employee in 1946. And in this city, there was a long-standing policy which barred African Americans from a local community pool. And when he learned that black children were not admitted to the city pool, he resigned his position in protest. And an important thing to note is that pool was not whites only. The only people who couldn't swim in that pool were black people. He was welcome to use that pool, but he decided he was going to take a moral stance, which, let me tell you folks, we love a moral stance, especially when it's convenient. So he decided that he was going to start mailing letters to city officials and he built a coalition to fight this rule so it wasn't just him he started pestering the city officials which had been this this law had been in place for 25 years despite being illegal like that's that's just it was illegal and the nebraska government was like hmm the law it's up to interpretation but not according to ishikawa so he And the city's director of recreation accused him of stirring up trouble. So they were like, hey, 
you, you're supposed to behave. You're supposed to assimilate. What are you doing? And Ishikawa's like, sorry, rebellion is the name of the game. And because of his multiracial coalition, he was able to pressure the city council and integrate the pool, which is amazing. And of course, this is just like a tiny incident in like the whole, but this was before the 60s. This was in the 40s. And I think sometimes it's important, especially for Asian Americans, to stand up when they see oppression specifically towards African Americans, because as much as we don't like to admit it, or when I say we, I mean Asian Americans, we do have a privileged position in this society. Like, yes, we have been deemed the model minority, but that means we're often regarded as more palatable or more easy to interact with, less troublemakers. And a lot of people, a lot of Asian Americans, kind of benefit. We all benefit off of that, but a lot of people choose to see that as, oh, I deserve it because I worked harder, not necessarily recognizing that you were given this position by the dominant group. And because of that, a lot of people don't use that specific privileged position we have as minorities in this, as that's the model minority in this country, to speak up for other minorities who don't have that same privileged position. And I think it's really important that we do because it's much easier for us to speak up maybe than it is for someone who has had their community brutalized by the police. So the fact that Ishikawa did this in the 1940s is incredible and should be recognized. And the second person I wanted to talk about was Yuri Kochiyama. Uh, We love talking about women of color on this podcast. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean it super importantly because they played a huge role in our history and we never hear about them. So Yuri actually was in a Japanese internment camp as well. Um, And she actually wasn't mad after she got out of the internment camp. She kind of put her head down and was like, okay, whatever. But I think deep down she was upset because when she she got married and her family they moved to Harlem in 1960 and then started expanding their activism so they started inviting uh, first of all they worked with the Harlem Parents Committee and they organized school boycotts to defend quality education for any inner city children and this astonished me when I read this she was among 600 people arrested for blocking the entrance of a construction site to demand jobs for black and Puerto Rican workers. So she, she really did that. She blocked the entrance and was arrested for it. But it, it's funny because the article was like, oh, she wasn't angry and she wasn't an activist until much later in her life. And then the next sentence was like, yeah, in 1960, she literally chained herself to this and then got arrested. Like, I don't know about you, but that seems pretty activist to me. And she also um, was good friends with Malcolm X. So in 1963, she met him outside of a courthouse and was like, hey, you, do you support integration? (laughs) And of course, Malcolm X did. So she found herself drawn to the black liberation cause. And she actually was with him when he was killed. There's a photo in Life magazine of her holding his body. And of course, she was not named or even recognized um, or the fact that she was even there because America would like to pretend sometimes that women of color aren't there at important points in history. So she was very much integrated with this black nationalist cause. So then after he died, she decided that she she was in it to win it. I guess. And she started working with militant black nationalist organizations in Harlem and formed a bunch of different groups, um, including the Republic. Oh, no, sorry. She worked with the Republic of New Africa. 
And when the FBI and the police started repressing black activists, she decided she was going to help these political prisoners and had nonstop letter writing. So she often would write up until two or three in the morning, had prison visits and activist mobilization. So she not only was she supporting them when they had some power in the community, but she was supporting them when they were behind bars um, for their for their activism. And she also became a link between the Black and Asian movements on the East Coast as well as the West Coast. So she helped form links between the Asian American movement and Black movements on the East Coast, um, and then also on the West Coast, and then helped, woo, helped those movements work together across the coast. So she really, she was truly putting herself out there and using her position of power, relative power in this community or in this country to make sure that her fellow activists were having their voices heard and were getting their claims or getting their cause across. So there are definitely, these are only two of the activists that I pulled from a lot of oh okay when I say a lot of research I don't mean a lot of research okay there are not a lot of sites about Asian American activists on the internet and there are even fewer about Asian Americans who work with black um, black Americans but of those sites there were tons and tons of people who were listed and I think that's a really important thing that we need to recognize, that we aren't existing in these separate communities, that we do actually have a history of working together, especially in this day and age where it's living in this country is feeling more and more precarious and more and more like communities are being attacked. And I don't think we see that same cross-community organization, which I think we could all really benefit from. Um, And when I say all, I mean, well, actually, I mean everyone. I think everyone can benefit from cross-community coalition building. So that wraps up our second episode. Um, Please let me know if you actually know me in person, what you thought of the episode, what topics you want me to cover next. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in to my second episode. I hope that there were less technical difficulties and maybe less jokes because I did have a lot of content to cover, but I hope that you enjoyed and I will see you next time.